Hi, everyone. I'm Diane M. Samard coming to you from Bioaerospace in uh, lovely Centennial, Colorado. And I'm thrilled to be here today with Bob Rourke as part of a follow-on podcast for Business Leaders Podcast. I'm here today to talk about my experience now that I've published a book that I wrote called The Unlikely Gift of Breast Cancer. And I'm here to talk about how much fun I'm having integrating my life as an author and also my life as a senior vice president and board member for this amazing company that's developing what we believe will be the world's first FAA Part 23 certified airplane called eFlyer. And we're targeting the flight training market. And so my book, uh, which I finished and published earlier this year, is what I'm finding out is that it's really appealing to two different sets of folks. One is newly diagnosed women with breast cancer who are shocked at how emotional this experience is. They're finding that their emotions really range from extremes. And as I always say, everything seems to all of a sudden get amplified in your life. Your highs are higher, your lows are lower. And what this book does is really go into my personal experience. It's not a self-help book or a do this, don't do that book. It's really the story about my experience how I felt these same emotions and what I did about it. And then secondly, the other group that is finding this book appealing are those who are either survivors themselves or caregivers to survivors who wonder just what this experience is like. One thing that I did is I really set out to capture what it tastes and feels and smells like to go through what I call the nuclear bomb treatment, which includes chemo and surgery and radiation. And so again, it's just a very vivid recap of what I experienced how I reacted, how I responded, and again, what I did about it. I happened to find that journaling was very soothing for me, and based on that journal is what turned into this story that I just published. Diane, thank you so much for sitting down again. This is our second time. I think for many, and if not all, we all have cancer somewhere in our families, and it's been in my family. We recently had a friend that got re-diagnosed here recently, and so the journey continues and what I thought was most important about this is that you had courage and foresight to write the book and put yourself out there and put yourself at risk. And at the same time, you're very busy with bi aerospace and life goes on. I really wanted to make sure we did this in, you know, YN Business Leaders podcast. The cancer for you was during your and still is during your business career. And so there are many different business owners that have either themselves, loved ones, or people in their business that are diagnosed with cancer. So I thought it was important to go back through this again. So we're going to talk about the book, right? And some of the things that maybe people don't think would be what they would think is an outcome. And so for the book, Diagnosis, Treatment, and Advocacy, let's talk about that. Happy to. Of course, writing the book was part of my healing process and continues to be. As I mentioned, I journaled. I found that I couldn't find anyone to talk to. And I asked my oncologist for a therapist that I could meet with one-on-one -on -one who understood what it's like for a type A business executive for myself who very much needs to think she's in control to go through this process, which again, Statistically, we knew the outcome likely was that it, it was going to be treatable and go into remission, which thankfully it did. However, I was more concerned because I think in terms of, I would say, a chess player, I'm often thinking five years, 10 years out. 
And I was concerned about how this experience, this traumatic experience was going to impact me psychologically over the long term. And so it was when I asked my oncologist for a referral to a therapist and she didn't know of anybody, but she recommended group therapy, which I'm not a group therapy person, that I started digging into why there's a lack of practitioners. Well, as it turns out, there are therapists who do see cancer patients. The key is, though, that most of them get their training either at the postdoc level or on the side. It's very specialized. And I found that no one at any university in this country was offering oncology psychology training at the graduate level while they're still in school. And so because of my business background, I saw this as an opportunity if I seed funded and launched this specialty. And it's called the Center for Oncology Psychology Excellence, or COPE, and it's at the University of Denver, that it would start to bring attention to the importance, how big of a gap there is in our healthcare system, that it's not just cancer, but other traumatic health experiences that we're not paying any attention really to the individual experience. My cancer experience is likely different than other breast cancer patients because my body chemistry, my background, how I deal with stress and trauma. And so I really hope that all of this attention that the book is bringing and that I'm trying to do during my advocacy brings more attention to the importance and the long-term impact, again, psychologically, of such a traumatic health experience. How long has COPE been in place at University of Denver? So it's two and a half years old. It was launched in February of 2016, about three months after I finished my formal treatment. And the first classes were offered in the fall of 2016. And I'm so pleased that since COPE was launched, that 64 students have either taken some or all of the COPE classes. There's four classes in the COPE offering. And then in addition to a classroom component, there's clinical components because these are clinical psychologists, the psychologists that will see patients as opposed to research psychologists that are doing the research work. And so the COPE clinic aspect to it in its first year alone the COPE students provided over 7,000 hours of assistance to cancer patients, survivors, and their caregivers at the COPE clinic. I just think about the math of the hours. And so there's the concept of the class when it first was launched. Mm -hmm. And with the students going through and getting the feedback from the crowd, mm -hmm. for lack of a better term, what did you see on the evolution of COPE from 16 to 17 to now? Yeah, so there's quite a demand for it. And because of the work that's being done to start to try to rid at least our culture of that stigma of you have a mental health problem, that the brain is part of the body and that sometimes the brain gets impacted because of traumatic experience, war experience, cancer, divorce, death, and that your brain can start to not function again as it should. And so it is the early efforts to really bring more attention to the fact that you're not a horrible person, you're not purposely trying to do these things, your mind is just not working properly. And so I think the early results are that several survivors have reached out to me to say, you know, I'm a three-year, five-year survivor. I am having PTSD nightmares like you wouldn't believe. And so oftentimes, people respond to me this way too, is that you're a survivor. You've survived cancer. Your cancer is in remission or whatever the technical terms are. You should just be grateful and happy that you're alive. And what happens is that you have these emotional triggers. For example, there are people who are an emotional trigger could be a certain smell. For me, it's a piece of plastic Tupperware in our cupboard that when I was going through chemo and barfing up a lung every other week, 
some friends gave us some frozen meatballs in this piece of Tupperware. And I see that in the cupboard and I get nauseous. And so it's a trigger. And again, there's early research. I'm very interested in the research aspect of this too. There was one study done a couple of years ago in the cohort of the group of survivors of all types of cancer that were studied. It was about a group of about 500 survivors. And at the six-month mark after their treatment ended, 21% of this group was diagnosed with PTSD. And it appears that the PTSD symptoms spike at the six to 12-month post-treatment mark. And then at the four-year mark post-treatment, that PTSD percentage is going back down to kind of the national average, which is about 6.8% of those citizens in our country that are experiencing PTSD from whatever trigger or reason at any given time. I think about the folks that are listening and they're going, you know, all she's missing is a cape and a big S on her chest, you know, (laughs) and you think about that. And so the folks that are thinking about this said, how did you get the book done and work full time too? So by aerospace, this is our 12th year, and I've been an employee, very interested in what we're doing, an investor from the very, almost the very beginning. And so we certainly had our lean years like any company does. This launched right before the recession of 2008 started. And so I worked through treatment, and my treatment lasted 10 months. And I worked as much as I could, which was on average about half to three quarters of the time. And my business partner, George Bai, was so wonderful about allowing me to have the time that I needed to be home, just trying to recover from, again, you've said it before, Bob, they do their best to try to kill you during this treatment process. And as I was coming out of treatment, getting my energy back, rediscovering who I was, I found that spending 30 to 60 minutes at home at my home office writing every morning was a key part of my recovery. Again, it was that therapy. It was capturing. It was actually how this came about was that I ended up writing the first manuscript for this book exactly a year after it happened. And in fact, I remember one morning when I was working on the chapter about my first chemotherapy infusion, as I was writing that exactly a year later, I had to run to the bathroom and thought I was going to be sick. I mean, that's the point of how powerful this is and how your mind, it's just so vivid still. And thankfully, because of, I think personally for me, forcing myself to relive it, but to do something about it, to have a life raft called a book, a project, cope, something to say, we can do better at this treatment process and to grab onto something and to be able, again, to integrate that part of my life and the advocacy work with what we're doing here, which is revolutionizing general aviation and showing that it can be done, just like electric cars have over the last decade really come into their own and we're seeing the efficiencies. Of course, we've got kinks that have got to get worked out. But the point is, is that this is doable. The battery energy densities are improving. The, all the goodness is there. We're integrating all of that together, much like I'm integrating my post-cancer advocacy work, which is so important for me to continue to be positive about this and to view, to why I titled the book the way that I did, The Unlikely Gift of Breast Cancer. I learned so much about myself, my upbringing, why I am who I am, and having been trained as a journalist and now having the chance to finally have my own voice as opposed to being a business writer my whole life and writing everybody else's speeches and press releases. The doors have really opened for me, and I'm just so grateful that others are responding to the fact that this can be an experience of self-discovery and transformation. It's not a desired sorority or fraternity to be a post-cancer survivor. And the thing that I was thinking about as you were talking is, you know, as you're innovating and advancing and reflecting and doing what you do in the business world, 
and you have a long history of being successful in the business world. And you think about how in the world do you take this particular horrific experience? You know, I remember you were talking about the red, whatever it was that they gave you. And your comment was, if it spills outside of the injection site, it'll burn your skin. And all I could think of is, well, what's it doing on the inside? But I think about how to turn this around and create something to help others. And I read the book. The part that sticks in my mind the most is when you were driving your car and yelling away. I think that it's like the arc of the book. And what Bob is describing is I'm about halfway through chemo, sick as a dog, trying to slog through life, praying that I'm going to survive treatment. And I had never gotten angry. And I had just come from lunch with a dear, dear friend. And all we talked about was cancer. And I told her as I went on and on and on about, I just wouldn't shut up about cancer. And I made this comment. I said, I'm so sick of talking about cancer. This cancer cloud follows me everywhere. And she interrupted me. She said, Diane, you just start living your life again as though you don't have cancer. And it was just brilliant. And so that was the moment when I realized I can make a choice whether or not I let cancer define me. And I decided I didn't want to be defined as the cancer survivor first and foremost. What I wanted this to be is an illustration of how something so traumatic can be turned around, turned on its head, and to say, I can be challenged. I certainly found out the depth of my strength and ability to bounce back. But I was just determined to say, this is going to change me. And for some reason, people are really interested in, because by this time, I was starting to send out updates about what this was like. And so many of our friends were responding to the details that I was describing that they're like, no one ever wants to talk about cancer. And I've always had these questions. And I'm like, oh, ask me anything. And it's okay to talk about it or not talk about it. It's just whatever is in here that feels right for you. And after I left lunch that day, I am, again, I often call myself an enigma because I have all these contrasts in my life. I'm a control freak, but yet I look at things differently. I look at challenges as an opportunity and I'm more interested in what people do to come back from adverse situations than what they did to make themselves successful. You know, whatever. Well, you know, I think about that in the book. There was one point you said, I decided to cut my hair off before it fell out. You're going like, I'm going to exercise control where I can. You know, and sure enough, treatments, whatever remaining, fell right. out. I equate that, again, use a business analogy. So how many of us have been in business and you know the day is going to come when you have to make some cuts? cut staff, cut expenses. And I've seen my experience has been that there are those CEOs and leaders who see this coming, hate it, and wait to the absolute last moment when they're barely hanging on by a thread before they do it. And then there's those that say, all indicators are such that this ain't going to get better. We're going to have a plan for how we're going to come back from this. But in order to do that, we need to make these changes right now. And you can certainly continue to pray and hope for a miracle. But Pretty thin strategy. It is. And it, what it does is it beefs up your plan. And, you know, I'm going to be the one that takes the biggest cut or whatever that plan is. You show leadership, but you show and you be proactive to say, you know, I don't want to wait till the absolute last minute to watch my hair fall out in the shower. I didn't want that additional self-inflicted trauma because I knew that was going to take me over the edge. So I'm like, and I actually had my hair cut off five days after my first chemo infusion because my hair just felt brittle. Oh, it's just awful. It felt like I hadn't washed all the shampoo out of it. And so um, my husband helped me. And it was very liberating for about 24 hours until, again, those emotions came back into play. And I went back to the office. I came here the next day. And I was so nauseous. The wallpaper made me sick, the color of the wallpaper. 
Oh, it's just really incredible. And again, the reason for me is that the anti-nausea drugs, I jokingly say mind-bending drugs, but it really is working with your mind, trying to convince your body that you really aren't sick. Because the red devil, the red called adriamycin, it's really, I equate it to drain cleaner is what it's doing because it's wiping out those unhealthy cancer cells. But at the same time, it's got to kill off the good cells. And so why I lost a lot of weight during those four chemo infusions is that your body uses all the calories, turns it into energy to rebuild the healthy cells that have just been obliterated. But the problem with me was that when I switched chemo drugs for the second half of chemo, I had that infusion every week. And those darn steroids that are so important to tolerating the nausea and the side effects, then all of a sudden it's grabbing all the water and all the fat you're putting in and just the opposite happens. And so I was putting on a pound a week, still eating as healthy as I could and trying to exercise. And it's just brutal. It just could not be more frustrating and dehumanizing of a process. You know, I think for many folks, you know, they talk about the pivot point and characters defined not so much by what you do when things are going well. Character truly is defined by when things are not going your way. So I think about this and you've been through business challenges. You've been through the health challenge and so on. And, you know, there's probably other business owners out there. So there's, I've had a few challenges. I'd like to share my thoughts after success, after coming back from the challenge. What advice would you offer to that business owner that's out there thinking about writing a book? For me, as far as finishing a project like this, it was so cathartic. An added, I guess, incentive for me is that this was a very spiritual experience, a spiritual awakening. I had already had it with organized religion. And so I kept having these thoughts, call them God moments or whatever, but it became so important. And my friends and those who knew me gave me such affirmation to say, we really want to write here, read about what it is that this experience is like. So I just, all the signs were there that I needed to do this. I didn't do this. And trust me, as a self-published author, you don't do this to make money. Yeah, not for the money. This is just important. This is certainly the biggest project I've ever taken on, but I wasn't going to be at peace with myself and really be able to shut the door on this part of my life, this life-changing experience until I accomplished this, until I finished this. And it took forever. Like in business, two to three times as long as I thought it would. I didn't really have a budget, but I've done all kinds of business writing, proposals and press releases. This is my story, and I wanted to get it right. I did a lot of digging deep into family history as to what molded me. The father-daughter relationship is really a key message throughout this. And it comes out. It does. It does. And I'm at peace now because I discovered so much about myself and why I am who I am. I always thought my calling in my career was to be the number two gal, to be there to put the words in the leader's mouth to make him or her look good because I had thrived at that until I went through this and I realized I have my own voice. Some people seem interested in what it is that I have to say. And I turned 50 in the midst of all this. I mean, it was so symbolic, Bob, that I'm just so grateful now to be able to go back and look at all the crazy business experiences, the things that I've seen done right and wrong, to reflect that on that, to bring those experiences into my memoir. It's just really an incredible sort of coming together of everything that's gotten me to this point. And then I'm now positioned to say, oh, we have this cool aerospace company. We're revolutionizing general aviation and other things we can't even talk about yet. And then there's this other advocacy part. I hope to have several more books in me. Working full time, it's really tough to be your own publicist and I'm doing the best I can, but I just want to take my time. I tell you, if I tell future stories and publish future books, 
it's not going to be the hundred things you need to do to be successful. I'm not interested in that. I mean, there's plenty of people in self-help books and really wonderfully published authors and books about how to do that. I want to go back and talk about what's the worst day in your life, the lowest point of your career, and how did you pull yourself up by the bootstraps and get out of that? I find those stories to be fascinating. You know, I always think about there was a point, there's a place, there was a moment. And for many, and you'll go on this day at this point, I decided. And you know, and it's common. I had this conversation with my daughter this morning. I said, you just went through a whole bunch of stuff. I said, tell me about your decision process. How did you decide? And what do you think about how you decided? Like you have a really good idea of what a crappy day looks like. Yeah. So then that's how my book starts. It starts on that the moment I was diagnosed and then what I processed for the next four or five hours. And by the end of that day, that horrific day, I had a plan because that's what business teaches you. I think is to think methodically to say, I could go spend the next three weeks wallowing in self-pity, drinking myself into oblivion, or I can do what we do in business, which is not wallow in all this to say, oh, gee, here's another unexpected. What am I going to do? Exactly. You know, and I was really bitter and angry. Well, not really angry, but I was, I just couldn't believe I'm like, God, I'm turning 50. Come on. And I've just been through as a really amateur angel investor, wanting to help other entrepreneurs develop their ideas. Oh my gosh, it's been such a merry-go-round. And the stories that go along with that, I just couldn't believe here I am facing what could possibly be the biggest challenge of my life at a time when I'm just looking for peace. You know, you wonder, there's always this entitlement thought. I'm a certain age. Yeah. I've got a certain amount of whatever it is, mileage behind me. This shouldn't be happening to me now. And I've heard this a lot and read about it some. And you go, what makes you special where you think it shouldn't be you? Yeah. And so, you know, the short answer is you just got to pull your boots on. And get busy. I have several moments like that throughout my story in the book. And in fact, even through treatment, as I was getting started with chemo, my husband, Rini, and I would always bust up laughing because stuff happened to me that just doesn't normally happen. And so, for example, I got really sick the first time I switched chemo drugs and got started on the next phase of my chemotherapy, which is this evil wonder drug called Taxol. So thankfully, I was alone in the infusion room that day. Because I, once again, had been barfing up a lung for months being sick. And so I thought, well, this drug is supposed to be less difficult on my stomach. But because our healthcare system doesn't have a test to see whether or not I'm allergic to Taxol, they give me a double shot of steroids beforehand. And they do this pre-chemo drip. And so I'm like, oh, I'm not sure. I have a really weak stomach. And they're like, well, I said, what's the alternative? Well, you could die if you're allergic to Taxol. And I go, once again, are you serious? This is the best way we have is the just try it method. But I'm like, okay. So they gave me the double steroid. And so for the next hour, while I'm having the Taxol infusion, I ended up not being allergic, thank God. But the double dose of steroids, it's like, imagine you're a dog and you're chained to a post. That's what it felt like. Because you have these leg twitches and these jolts of energy and you're just angry. I just wanted to just scream. So I went through that for an hour and it was when they went to do my port flush and you have a port inserted under your skin. And so the last infusion of the day is saline to flush out your port so it doesn't get infected. So they put that saline, hooked me up to the saline, and then all of a sudden everything started to spin. And I told my husband, Rini, I said, bring me a wastebasket. And I unleashed seven times. So the all the medical personnel came rushing in and they said, well, that shouldn't be happening. That shouldn't be happening. I kept hearing that over and over Everything just happens to me differently. I'm not normal. And I said, I don't know what it was. It must have been the double dose of steroids. And they go, well, you're not allergic to Taxol. That's good. And I said, but I don't know. This made me sick. Can I go back to a single dose of steroids next time? And they're like, well, 
it depends on what the doctor says. And it ended up that I was able to just do the single dose. But it's just weird stuff happens to me. And everybody's reactions of, you're just so different. People usually don't respond in the way that you do. And I go, I think that's my gift. That's who I am in this world. Call it abnormal or unique or different or whatever you do. But I just accept that I live my life differently. I always have. I think about the stories and I actually wrote a review on a book and I said, it's a first person shooter view because you're in the midst of doing what you do and being different and writing the book, you know, at the same time. So you've got the book, you've got the manuscript, you've got the journaling. You and I talked on a previous podcast, you were still in the midst of titling and yeah. trying to bring it together. And now we're here. And now you've got some stuff going on with Bi Aerospace, a certification recently. Actually, we're in the queue. We've applied. And so the airplane program has to be much more mature. We have to have a whole bunch of test flight hours on the airplane. And we believe we're very early in the process. Again, what Seth's talking about differentiators, what BioSpace is doing very differently with electric airplanes. Our electric airplane is we're targeting a specific market. And all of your business listeners will likely appreciate this. There have been electric airplanes flying for some time. However, we're targeting a specific market and we're applying a business case to electric airplanes. And our business case is that we're trying to help address the commercial pilot shortage, which is going to be chronic in 20 years. I mean, it is regional airlines have already shut down because they don't have enough pilots to staff. And so it requires 1500 flight hours. There's all these it's a very expensive endeavor if you want to become a commercial airline pilot. And so, in fact, as much debt as being a doctor or a lawyer, believe it or not. And trust me, most pilots don't start out earning high salaries. And they're not paid very much to start. Correct. So anyway, we're optimistic that because of the efficiencies, and there's many efficiencies, and that electric motors, Siemens is our electric motor partner, and the battery energy densities are getting so much more improved that we believe by the time we achieve certification, which we're projecting for 2021, and the way this works is that as the batteries improve, the same airplane airframe is just going to be able to fly longer and longer and longer. And so it's not like you have to completely retrofit the airplane to accommodate that. It's putting a higher, more denser battery. And so again, flight schools are starting to realize this makes a lot of sense because, again, as we've talked, Bob, they used to fly a Cessna 150, 152. And the average age right now of the current training fleet is over 50 years old. And so like the same year of airplane that you flew back in the day, it's still, it's still in use. Yeah. And so we're hoping and optimistic that this will be a shot in the arm for this industry. And to address this, again, as the world starts to rely more and more on flying people from point A to point B, that we'll have the pilots because the military isn't producing as many pilots in the past as for a whole host of reasons. And then the current average age of pilots for the commercial fleets, it's they're getting older and older and, gonna, and they have a restricted retirement age. And so- And they're even talking about extending that to they try are. to solve yeah, the problem. Exactly. You know, when you look at this journey and you know, for the folks that are concerned, they're in the, in the workforce and they're going, what's my employer going to think? And then currently they're going like, I think journaling would be a good idea for me too. I'd like to produce a book as well. You were supported on both sides, both from Bi Aerospace and George, and also they supported you in your book effort. You want to talk about that? Yeah, that was so great. Again, this is a very special company. Not everybody gets us and that's okay. We like to think we do things differently, but loyalty is a really big deal for us. And again, those of your listeners who are entrepreneurs know, I just wish we could all start business ventures completely well-funded up, all the money you're ever going to need 
and it likely never happens that way. Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) That ain't going to happen either. And so, again, and I've been through much in my 11 years here. This was just another part of life. This was another aspect, element, dynamic to who I am as a person. And the fact that I had such loving support here and understanding and encouragement to express myself in this way and to finally, for the first time, get out in front and to say, I'm going to stop telling George's story for this moment and I'm going to tell my own story. Again, not because I want the attention. I just, apparently, this is an important part of my recovery. And for me to be able to keep this in perspective by saying, Here's a small town girl that went through this and here's how she dealt with it. And she is really damn grateful to have been given a second chance at life. And I will always, because I saw so many individuals cursed with cancer who were not going to survive. And it was important for me to be a witness to that. It was heartbreaking, heartbreaking. But I believe you have to see the bad before you can appreciate the good. You know, I think about what I understand of your ethos. I learn, I share, I pass on. And I think about for you, You're back basically full-time in the saddle with Bi Aerospace. What do you think, if you were to contrast the Diane before cancer at Bi and the Diane after cancer at Bi, what do you think the key differences are in what you bring to the table? Yeah, so the pre-cancerous Diane was always holding back, always apologizing, always saying, you know, there are smarter, better, well-spoken people than I am. I am just best positioned being number two. That's my place in life. And again, it's not just the experience. It's the fact that when you're a woman and you're 49 and a half years old and you go through chemo, that launches you into menopause. And again, not to get so personal, but that's a key part because my type of breast cancer is fed, if you will, by estrogen. They shut off my estrogen four years ago. So now I have like, they took all the filters away. And so I have been known to blurt out in meetings things I would have never dreamed of saying before. Like that makes no blankety blank sense. And again, I hope that I do it respectfully enough, but I just can't hold back anymore. I just can't. I joke that it's because the estrogen's gone and they give you as a therapy, these drugs that shut off your estrogen permanently. It's hormone therapy, not hormone replacement, because they don't want me to have estrogen because that'll bring back the cancer. But again, my body thinks differently and I just can't hold back anymore. And sometimes I'll just say, even in, I've been known to do this with George, is like, I'll sit through a meeting and I'm, you know, I'm fidgeting and I'm like, oh my God, I am going to unleash <laughs> once this meeting's over. <laughs> and I do. And, you know, I try to be respectful, but I'm like, George, I'm going to have a lack of estrogen moment here and I'm about to go off. But it's not just complaining. It's like, okay, here's what's happening. But I always try to offer a solution. I'm just not a whiner about it. Here's what we can do differently. Let's think about this in a different way. I tell you, just being able to speak freely is so liberating for me. You know, I was going to ask you in the pre-cancer versus post-cancer, Diane, with this newfound candor or unleashed candor, perhaps, how does that make you feel? It's like a rebirth, to be honest with you. I think this is the real me. And I was just on Facebook last night corresponding with my cousins on my father's side. Their beloved father was my favorite uncle. And he was the life of the party. He always had jokes. And when my Uncle Frankie walked in the room, everybody just got happy. It's like, Frankie's here. This is going to be fun. And so I found out that I have this dry sense of humor of like, we have instant messaging here and I'll read something and it's funny. And so I'll pull up a clip from a movie and I'll just send out an instant message in the midst of everybody's day here. And we all, you can just hear us all laughing. That's what I do just because I don't know. I just need to take 30 seconds here to have a laugh. I don't take things nearly as seriously anymore. 
I'm very passionate about being an author and helping other duly diagnosed cancer patients as a listener, not telling them. I just listen. What are you feeling? But I don't know. Life is such a gift. It's to be celebrated. I'm not here to tell you how smart I am. I don't have all the answers. I just find funny stuff that happens in everyday life. And I combine that with caring and finding meaning. That's who I am. I don't have, again, a top 10 list for what you should do to be healthier, wealthier, successful. I have a need and a passion to help others to be available, to be a cheerleader almost. Well, with that being said, what's going on with COPE now? Yeah. So COPE is sustaining. It's doing very well. But again, when you have an entrepreneurial mind like mine that never stops, it's not nearly enough. And so I've talked to several organizations, if you will, other universities about offering this same COPE format at other universities because pretty much it's not a problem in Colorado. It's everywhere. And so that's how I think. And I've tried to initiate some conversations and there's some level of interest in emulating COPE. And again, I don't want to be getting credit for all this. I just think that this is our healthcare system needs more evidence and statistical information to show. Personally, I think that by offering more individualized mental health counseling, while you're going through and after this process and then paying more attention to the caregivers, this is really traumatic for them too, to say, we're going to look at you as a human being, not as patient number 57 today. And to say, you had a death in your family last year. This is like the second whammy in a year. We're very concerned about the level of stress in your life. How are you dealing with this very challenging process? Again, I'm not doing this for me. I really am not. And I think what has resonated with a lot of people is the fact that I do what I do aerospace. Airplanes are cool. I'm not a pilot. I just see really cool business opportunities. And I think, again, there's money to be made, sure. But we're revolutionizing an industry that needs saving. And that's the opportunity that I see. It's trying to help improve, constant improvement. And I believe our healthcare system has such a long way to go. And the whole fighting the insurance companies and who's going to pay for what. I just would like to see individualized, more attention on individualized mental health support be a standard protocol as part of a cancer treatment. That's all I'm... And I think about that. Now, we had the year where everybody died from cancer in our family, and we were so checked out of the net, we put our kids back another year because we basically checked out of the net. Yeah, we did the normal things, but the kids got lost in the shuffle and they were little kids. And so, you know, you look at that and many people have cancer that permeates their family. I certainly have had through the years and I see the caregiver, I see the person with cancer and then you see the relatives and, you know, and, and it's an individual sport for sure on how you deal with it and everybody deals with it differently. Your comment about the mental health and I think about not only are you working on the mental health psychology side, but I think about all the chemicals that have been flushed through your brain. And, you know, if you were a healthy person with all that stuff through your brain, they would treat you for being poisoned. And I think about what rewiring happens in the brain post-treatment. Yeah. And I'm not sure we really want to know. Yeah, that's great. Nor do we have much, if any, research on that. And so on that note, I would like to add that I've had some criticism, actually, and I respect this, from those who have, let's say, an untreatable cancer that are a later stage who are, you know, why are you worrying about the people that are going to live? Worry about those of us where there's no effective treatments. We need to focus on research to find cures for my type of cancer. And I don't disagree with that. There's no black and white in this. My challenge back is, again, for the whole healthcare system is the fact that statistically, 
lives are being prolonged because in some cases treatments are more effective because we've had all of this research. Again, it's not everybody, but in some cases, again, statistically, you're more likely to survive generally cancer than you were. Mm -hmm. Well, my mom died in 1978 from cancer. She didn't make 50. And what she died from then is now curable now. It's heartbreaking. You know, you can't do research on a person that's passed. So you have the survivors as a pool. And so to that point, that's why I come back and I just ask and I say, but think about the fact that everything that I continue to do and yoga and trying to have less stress and to joke about things a lot and not take myself seriously. I've met plenty of survivors who are 10 years out as a survivor. Their anxiety is getting worse. And they are so freaked out about cancer recurring because they're aging and they're saying, like I do, gosh, could I have gone through what I went through at age 50, at age 70? You know, my take on that is what's the alternative? Right. Yeah, I know. (laughs) And You do what you do. No, you do. And again, it's perspective. But there's no easy answer. I am not a, we must do this. All I'm saying is take a look at the situation. And to your point about when you impacted your children at a young age and This experience, because it's so frightening, it's so many things. And again, statistically, you survive cancer once, greater chance it's going to recur, all those things. And so I was kind of at a 0% risk, if you will, for cancer happening genetically, because I don't have any cancer genes, but dementia and heart disease. Absolutely, there's tons of that. And so I have to remind myself that I'm not all high and mighty because I survived cancer once. I'm still eating healthy for the heart disease. And I mean, life is complicated. And so focus on living. And that's a theme in my book is that all my life, my mother, health professionals have just said, focus on living, celebrate your life, be grateful, all of those things. Oh, there's things that are just going to make you angry. And that's what adds color to your life. Figure out where your place is, what you can do to impact change and to be grateful because I saw so many people, again, who were not going to survive this. And it's heartbreaking. And I live my life for them now. You know, I think about the book and, you know, to kind of bring this to a close, because I've been harassing you for a while now. Again. It's always fun. It's always fun, though. You know, the unlikely gift of breast cancer is the title you ended up with. As you think about, you've got your notes from along the way. Mm -hmm. You went through the draft. You did all the things that you do as a journalist that you know how to do. So for the person that has that book in them, but as importantly, for the person, too, that may be trying to understand, obviously your book's available on Amazon and elsewhere. What advice would you have to wrap this up to that budding author that wants to get that book out? It's find the motivating reason that will allow you to spend 15 or 5 or 30 or 60 minutes every day or five hours a week or whatever it's going to take. Figure out what it is that's going to motivate you to want to do that. And like I said, Making money is not the reason. It's just not. (laughs) No. And is it an opportunity? Is there something that's nagging you that's unfulfilled? It really is an accomplishment. Honestly, though, when you get that first box of books in the mail, the work is just starting. Writing a book is the easy part. And I'm not discouraging anybody from doing this. And I did the self-publishing route. There's over 700,000 self-published books in this country alone every year. And so I just do what I can to be my own publicist, try to bring attention. I have wonderful friends who are helping me get Amazon reviews and all, and that's all important too. But again, it's to find that right motivation. Whatever it is, is going to get you out of bed at 5.30 instead of 6 o'clock every morning to do this because it is a process. I had 13 revisions of this book and I hired a professional writing coach because I was trained as a journalist to report a story. 
that was really helpful though, because she held me accountable. And so again, much like in business, figure out what it is that motivates you, those milestones, the accountability, is it going to cost you money? And my writing coach told me at the end of our six month engagement that most of her clients get one chapter written in the six month engagement. I got the whole first manuscript done. So again, figure it out, what motivates you in your life, and then apply that to this. Well, Diane, this has been a pleasure. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time again to share your insights. And for you folks out there, the unlikely gift of breast cancer, I would urge you to pick it up. I think you'll find it informational. And also, it's a good read. So I enjoyed the book myself. Thank you so much, Bob.